0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Derek Dorch of the Diversa Group, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Now your host, Derek T. Dorch.
0: Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Thank you for joining us. Today, we've got a special guest. We've got Stu Magnuson from the uh, National Defense Magazine. And, Stu, I think you're the editor-in-chief. Am I correct? Are you you, you in charge? You're the man in charge. Am I right, Stu?
1: Yeah, for better or worse, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but better or worse, right?
0: Hey, but um we've got Stu Mac- Magnuson on here and he's gonna be giving us a breakdown of some couple of topics. He just came back from the special operations conference. And so we're gonna talk about a couple kind of key things today, whether it be that, um, some uh simulation news that's going on in the Department of Defense and some other things that are also uh progressing um and kind of going towards the summer and other areas kind of going from the air. So Stu, hey, thank you for uh joining us on the show today.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure,
0: Derek. Hey, talk to us about this conference you went to, and a lot of news kind of broke out of that conference in terms of special operations. I've been talking to some special operations guys because of Afghanistan. There, you know, no longer on that dynamic of just the Middle East or the or the GWAT, the Global War on Terrorism. There's this kind of pivot now to the Indo-Pacific region as we are in this kind of great power competition situation. What were they talking about in terms of this pivot to the Indo-Pacific region?
1: Well, Special Operations Command, if you listen to their leaders, they're in lockstep with the uh, Pentagon's guidance, the national defense strategies that, uh, you know, we we have been involved in these counterterrorism type missions, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, for the past couple decades. They're going to continue a shift to the Indo-Pacific and what they call great power competition. When they say great power competition, that's Russia and China. Then you have some other kind of what they call near-peer competitors, Iran, South uh, North Korea, and so on, who have some capabilities. Uh, this really kind of started back in the Obama administration. There was a shift towards the rivalry with China. Of course, we were still involved in Afghanistan and so on. But now we're kind of free of that. And... uh this pivot can continue, I guess, as long as this administration's in, in power, and uh, their thinking continues on that. So, Special Operations Command, they, they're kind of dependent on the other services, and they basically need the other services to get them around the world and so on. So, on the other hand, they're still going to be involved in counterterrorism operations. That's kind of their bread and butter. They're kind of the commandos, the people who do night raids and so on. You know, so they're not completely abandoning that. They'll still be involved in that.
0: You know, with with this too, when we think about this framework to kind of moving towards kind of China, and because, you know, everyone talks about the Chinese dynamic as being a very, very big maritime fight, right? And I know... You know, from my time in the Marines and just following what's going on with the Marine Corps, of course the Commandant of the Marine Corps has been really pushing the Marine Corps and the kind of the Marine, you know, Corps Navy dynamic towards China as well. And so I guess I'm you know, I'm curious in terms of special operations, are they looking at more of a maritime role, more of an intelligence gathering role? Or what do they kind of give a kind of determination about if they're pivoting to more of this great power competition. What would their role be in that scenario?
1: Levers try to figure out their role. Uh, you mentioned the Marine Corps. That's very controversial. Uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General David Berger, has been uh, trying to modernize the technology that the Marine Corps uses and make the shift to the Indo-Pacific. When you talk about special ops, of course, you think about the Navy SEALs, Naval Special Warfare. So uh, there's basically a a special ops component for every service. They're the Green Berets for the Army. There's AFSOC, Air Air Force Special Operations Command, that fly their aircraft around the world and uh, very specialized aircraft, deliver the uh, special operators via helicopter or fixed-wing aircraft and so on. And then we have the Navy SEALs, Naval Special Warfare, they're talking about uh, returning to their frogman roots. Uh, I didn't get too far into that at the conference, but I, I definitely want to get more into it in future issues. But uh, so, like I said, for every component, they have a, a special operations equivalent. So uh, you would think, you know, if they're going to be in more of a maritime fight in the Asia Pacific, the Navy SEALs will be involved in that.
0: That question, without question, you know, when we think about this kind of framework, and I know that did they mention? I mean, especially with everything that's going on now in terms of the Yukon region, did they mention anything about the framework of now pivoting to uh, more towards Russia as well? Was there any kind of conversation about um, as we look at kind of a conventional warfare dynamic with with? Russia, Ukraine, and us putting a lot of conventional weapon systems on the ground there, artillery and otherwise. Was there any kind of conversation about being prepared to uh, possibly have to use special forces within those regions?
1: Well, there was an attempt by other journalists to ask that question. They weren't going to answer it. SOCOM is the organization that equips and trains and mans uh, the special forces, and then they kind of give them to the regional commanders and then the regional commanders do with them as they please. So these weren't the right people to ask about how European command is going to use special operators. And they were kind of deflecting those questions. Now I was asking in several uh, press availabilities about what is it in happening in Ukraine that's influencing you're thinking today. Mostly I was asking the technology people, those who are developing new technologies about that. They're not the people that write the requirements, but they all answered my questions. They had no uh, problem with answering that question. They are all watching Ukraine very carefully. I think everybody in the military is watching for lessons learned. And a lot of what they're saying is this kind of reinforces what the National Defense Strategy has been saying that uh, some of these old weapons just aren't going to be at- applicable in the future. Smaller units, you look at these loitering weapons, the javelins, these small weapons are taking out these big tanks, and uh, and they're all noticing that for sure. And another thing they're really taking note of is the information operations space. That's something we don't talk about with special operators. You think about them as being the commandos, the guys kicking in the doors to, you know, track down uh, terrorists, leaders, and so on, which they do. But they also, op- they also part of their mission is to do information operations. It used to be called PSYOPs, psychological operations. They've kind of got a kinder, gentler term for it today called MISO. The, this, the word PSYOPs always had that kind of uh, nefarious kind of <laughs> connotation. So they kind of came up with this kinder, gentler word, miso. It's
0: funny, uh, Stu. I just saw, I don't know if you saw that commercial that has been getting a lot of attention from Army Special Forces about that recruitment video that they have put out um, about recruiting people in the um, PSYOPs, uh, the Psywar, what they call a Psywar field. Right. Um, it got a lot of attention in terms of what, you know, what's going on and, um, you know, why are they recruiting so heavy right now in terms of either information operations or, as you mentioned, psychological operations. It, did there seem to be in the conference a, a heavy conversation about um, building those resources up, especially as we did with the misinformation and disinformation warfare scenario?
1: Right. It's, uh, you know, a big part of warfare and often forgotten part of warfare. And um, it's something that we kind of started to get our skills back with in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, what, trying to figure out, you know, how your actions are being interpreted by the general population, how they feel about that. Uh, The commander of Special Operations Command, uh, General Richard Clark mentioned in his keynote speech that he would like to have more sentiment analysis tools at his disposal, mm-hmm. and uh, these are things like maybe automated. You know, yeah, almost everything's got to be automated nowadays. Things are happening so quickly. You you can't have one person going through thousands of tweets to try to kind of come up with a picture. You have to you have to automate this, you know, through uh, uh, artificial intelligence or Something like that to kind of give the analysts a bigger picture of what's happening. So, the kind of new buzzword we're hearing, and I've heard it in Europe at another conference earlier, was tweets against tanks. Mm, Wow. A member, let's say, just a person in Ukraine takes a picture of a Russian tank and posts it on, let's say, Twitter with uh, geospatial data attached to it. Someone sees that, targets that tank, blows it up with loitering mission yeah. or long range fires or something. So you can see our ordinary citizen is somewhere, you know, through a Twitter account can take out a tank. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We're talking to Stu Magnusson and he's the editor-in-chief of National Defense Magazine, and you can find him at nationaldefensemagazine.org. But Stu has been reporting on the special operations conference that he just came from, and some news came out of that about them pivoting over to kind of the great power competition that deals with China and the Indo-Pacific region and technology investments and also investment in their people and training towards that region and possibly a conflict in that area kind of going forward. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to keep this conversation going about what the special operations command is doing for the future. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Listen to fed access with Derek T. Deutsch on the federal news network. Welcome back to fed access with Derek T. Deutsch on federal news network. If you're just joining us, we've been talking about special operations. We're talking about special operations command. They just had a big conference um just recently uh, and we had uh, uh, Stu Magnusson from the uh National Defense Magazine he was covering that and came back with a lot of kind of I would call breaking news i'm gonna say that i'm gonna say that Stu some breaking news from the uh SOFIC conference that the special operations kind of was discussing in terms of where their future is but there was an interesting thing that as Stu reported on was that the special operators must exist without tethers Stu, what was that about? What's what's that whole conversation about operating without tethers? What what is
1: that coming from? Well, as everyone knows, SOCOM really, uh, over the last two decades, have been operating in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, places where they can set up forward operating bases, where they had lines of, you know, all day, every day, probably – aircraft coming from from America with supplies they could uh, operate in the electronic spectrum easily their opponents didn't really have any uh, advanced capabilities to jam their communications or or cut off patients to higher headquarters and all these things so they operate in what they call a permissive environment well As you think about shifting to competition with countries such as uh, China or Russia or Iran or even North Korea, heaven forbid we should ever get in a war with any of these these people, but that's the way they have to think. And uh, they're thinking, well, how are these special operators going to operate without – these tethers, these logistical supply lines, easy communications, and so on. So uh, that's that's something they're looking for. They need help from industry ideas about that, and uh, so that that emerged as a theme, definitely.
0: Is that in scenario? Um, and and you, you know, you just were talking about it in the previous segment. But in terms of uh, the nature, right, is is that really a dynamic of the different level of enemy that that we could be or I should say adversary that we should be that we could be dealing with when it comes back to maybe uh, a, a now, uh, a, you know, a, a battle against China. If we're in the Pacific or we're working the islands. I mean, the last time we really knew that warfare was back in World War Two. Right. And that right. was kind of, you know, and we. um You know, going back to my Marine Corps history, when I was in boot camp and everything else, we were always kind of taught about, you know, Iwo Jima and and all the island Pacific fighting, this, that, and the other, and how difficult that was. Um, As you kind of mentioned, I guess in the global war on terrorism, we had a kind of a full opera. We had control of the air. We had control of all the other areas. And the enemy was probably not as much in terms of um, they didn't have the same material or the same logistical dynamics that we had. I guess in the, in this scenario, with, with with maybe looking at China, they're thinking that if special operators are somewhere behind enemy lines, they're almost going to be cut off almost completely. Is that is that what they're thinking about?
1: Exactly. They're uh, you know these are these are guys who are trained to go behind enemy lines and operate independently. Uh, but you know you think about uh, you know just. Simple thing like carrying enough water for your mission. Mm-hmm. You know, have enough water. Um, are there ways for you to generate water on the go? Uh, there really weren't in those countries I mentioned, but there might be in the Asia Pacific where it's more humid. Maybe you can create drinkable water out of the air, for example. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, program managers even talked about creating your own ammunition on the go, uh, bringing kits with you that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily make the highest quality uh, ammunition around for your for your rifle, but it would be adequate. Right. And uh, right. something that you could, you know, in a, in a pinch, you know, make some ammunition if you're running out. Uh, we also have to talk about batteries, which is kind of a global thing. It's not just the military. Everyone's looking for that battery that's that's going to, uh, you know, charge your iPhone for 10 days, let's say. Right, right, right. Uh, And if anyone does come up with it, the military will be very interested in in getting it also. So, these kind of things, you know, you know, they're, you know, water, ammunition, uh, just batteries, you know, you don't think about these in, you know, when you think about jets and things that the military likes to acquire, but these are, you know, very important things for not only uh, Special Operations Command, but but those uh, army foot soldiers and marines operating, uh, you know, so it's important for all of them, really. You know, still in terms of this
0: kind of the untethering of the convention, you know, because as you mentioned, in the, you know, in the previous segment. Special Operations Command was very very reliant upon um, the conventional forces right to kind of get them to their location or to support their missions in terms of uh, logistics and otherwise is is Special Operations Command now thinking that we have to become more of an independent service where we have to have our own um, you know you know I mean of course there's you know parts of it that's their own um, you know air Dynamics and own this, that, and the other, but they're not as big as the conventional forces. Are they looking at maybe bigger budget lines to create their own scenario in which they can operate almost independently as a own branch? Or what, what mm-hmm. are they looking
1: at? I would say the answer to that is probably just no. I okay. think really it's uh, part of their doctrine that they, they don't go out and acquire technologies that the other services... Are acquiring. So when they look at a piece of special kit for their uh, special operators or even an aircraft or a small UAV or something, it has to be specifically for them. Uh, if it's something that the Army is creating or the Navy is creating, then they they let them do it. Okay. Uh, so there isn't, I think that's pretty much policy. So uh, I don't see that changing.
0: Hey, uh, talk to us about this gunship. I, and I just remember back in my military days and even before, even when I, you know, was thinking about joining the military, I was watching those military movies. And we always talk about um, Puff, you know, the magic dragon, the gunship yeah. that was able to like, you know, like go in an obliterated area. And, I, and so when I saw the, your article about this whole laser out of a gunship, I was like, whoa, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to like... You know, give Puff some laser um, laser breath now, right? Or whatever the case is. What's this whole gunship with the laser now?
1: Well, they, they, this idea first emerged uh, 2015, I think. We're seven, deer, seven years down the road. They still haven't actually installed it on a gunship. I think they're still doing ground tests. And they're still interested, as they should be. This is what we call an emerging technology. mm mm-hmm. So you can imagine how useful it would be if you could get that aboard an aircraft. Uh,
0: is this technology that's, I mean, I, I know the conversation has been going about lasers for a while, but is it technology that's actually real? Like, I mean, I have there been.
1: Um, it's real. It's, okay. Know. okay.
0: You
1: know, It's one of those jokes. It's always that technology that's five years away. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the Navy has installed a laser capable of taking down targets uh on a ship now you have a lot more space on a a ship in the ocean right power available to you uh than you do on an aircraft so i think that's a good first step you're starting to see systems that can be mounted on a uh, vehicle probably a you know jltv or humvee that can destroy a small uav because as we know Loitering munitions, small UAVs are a threat. So uh, you might want to have one of those uh, mounted on the vehicle. I, I think those have been demonstrated. Uh, and uh, that would be a very handy way to take out somebody trying to fly a small UAV at you to take you out. So, yeah. Right. It's, you know, like they say, it's always that one of those technologies that everyone jokes that's just five years away. Right. Uh, right. But it's a little more complicated on an aircraft. So they're going at a much more deliberate pace.
0: Hey, Sue, we gotta take a quick break. We're gonna come right back. Hey, we've been talking to Stu Magnuson. He is the editor in chief at the National Defense Magazine, and you can find him at national defense magazine.org always on top of some good coverage about what's going on defense industry and and everything that's really kind of happening with defense contracting and everything else that's going on in that sector right there we're talking about what's been going on with special operations command there was just another big conference where they uh, really kind of released a number of different things they're working on but when we come back we're going to be pivoting and talking about a little bit of the more the training and simulation side. There's some interesting developments that are going on in the military and the training and simulation side that I want to talk to Stu and kind of get an understanding about what is happening with some of our military uh, uh, branches and what they're doing in the virtual or synthetic talent training area. You listening to Fed Access with Derek T. George on the Federal News Network. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. George on Federal News Network. If you've been just listening just a few minutes, A lot of news is breaking out. Of course, you know, the war in Ukraine has been going on. But if you have been talking to special operations, they've been talking more about the framework of them pivoting towards the Indo-Pacific region and looking at China more than anything else. Of course, they're monitoring the Yukon region, the European region, and looking at the war in Ukraine and everything else. But they're heavily concerned about this great power competition with China kind of going forward. So that's what's in their mind beyond just this exact moment. But we've been talking to Stu Magnuson. He is the editor-in-chief of the National Defense Magazine. And, Stu, hey, tell them where you can find the magazine. I think you were mentioning that you can find it in, in Barnes and & Noble's. And where else can they find the magazine at?
1: Yeah, Barnes and & Noble and Books A Million and uh, a couple magazine racks at National Airport in Dulles. Uh, you nice. might find it there. But uh, now Barnes and Noble all over the country, Books a Million uh, also is carrying it.
0: Hey, I, I always get my subscription list because I, I'm on there, and, and I love to just read the magazine. And that's why I always call you, Stu, to kind of get some updates because I'm always, you know, pulling an article and, and doing some highlighting, you know, old school reading type stuff and this, that, and the other. But hey, hey, we, you know, the the military has been doing some things, and so I was interested. You know, I've been watching this whole kind of virtual training environment seeming coming up. And it seems that like the Army is doing a heavy investment in terms of this um, framework of of, of, of synthetic uh, a training or, or these virtual learning type platforms or these visual augmentation systems. Talk to us about what they're doing with this kind of new kind of training dynamic.
1: Sure. Well, there's three elements. They call it live virtual constructive. Okay. What I'm talking about is, Let's say uh, you're on a training range. You have your annual training. Uh, You might have some live people out there in the field uh, with their equipment or their vehicles. Uh, Meanwhile, in another building, or maybe even another part of the country, you might have someone taking part in the same training in a simulator connected through the network to those guys. And then, constructive, that means people that really aren't there at all, created by computers. So if you want to have an enemy force, you could have them on your screen, even if you're out in the field or in your simulator. Now, they're not really there. They're they're uh, created by the computer. So live, virtual, constructive is where all the militaries are going, including the Army. And uh, they think it'll improve their training and obviously save them a lot of money you think about you know setting up an opposing force or or uh setting up you know uh opposing aircraft into the air well if you do it with a computer a lot cheaper than setting a real one up right without question
0: um in the whole dynamic is this something i know the army's doing a heavy investment in this kind of stuff is this um kind of investment is training? Is this across all branches, or what are we seeing?
1: The live virtual constructive concept, yeah, that's all across all branches. They're all looking at that. So if you're in the Air Force, you know, you might be in a simulator. I mean, you might be training. The the vision is, you know, uh, you just call up your buddy. Uh, maybe you're in NATO, and uh, you're an English pilot, and you want to train with your German counterpart well to do that live takes months to arrange well if you both get in your simulator so hey uh about three o'clock you want to hop in your simulator and let's uh, train against some uh, russian migs yeah sure do it at your own time your own, you know you know when you want to do it so it's, it's it's immense it would that's the kind of vision i don't think for example nato is there yet but that's what they want to do and you know also let's say uh an Air Force guy wants to train with his Navy counterpart. I mean, that's, that's another vision. So uh, you can do some joint training in that regard. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, you can see where this is going and uh, the the benefits. Now, you know, there's people say, well, it's never going to replace live training. Maybe that's true, but uh, live training takes a lot of time to arrange. There's a lot of safety issues Mm-hmm. A lot of money and expense and moving people from one end of a the country to another sometimes and all their equipment to do this training. So uh, you can see where uh, the bean counters really like this idea and the, logistic, the logistics people really like the idea. And uh, so that's, that's where it's going. And I talked to one company when I was at this training and simulation conference in Europe that said they have uh, an engine that could support 50,000 players at once. So whether they're constructed or live, you just all hopping on your computer. You can play the helicopter uh, pilot. You could be the guy driving the truck or the woman driving the truck or the special operator roping down from the uh, the helicopter onto the roof. Uh, You know, all these moving parts in one simulated world just kind of blows your mind, but that's where it's going.
0: You know, with that kind of being the case and, and, and with this industry, it sounds like the the gaming industry and the military um, probably will have a very, very strong, I'm assuming, and, and tell me, Stu, I'm assuming that the gaming industry, like the call of duties and this, that, and the other are, um, Kind of, we the the military and they benefit off each other almost, right? In terms of the technology that's being built, is DOD investing in the, in the same technology that the Call of Duties investing in? They kind of, and we, if, if they if they succeed, we succeed. Or how's that working with the investment?
1: Yeah, I think they're all based kind of on the same engines. So, the, I think the military is definitely the beneficiary here in this. And uh, I don't know how much of it. Is going back and forth between the two industries. I'm not a gamer, but uh, a lot of these companies do have subsidiaries that are, you know, in the military market and so on. So, Right. Without question, without question.
0: Um, in, in, in the framework of, of kind of looking at um, the other pieces, when we think about, you know, you may, we mentioned about information warfare. And there's been this kind of creating a simulation for information warfare. Um, you know, and information warfare can be anything dealing with, um, you know, propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, and all the persuasion operations. What's this simulation that they're trying to create for this? I guess, again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the importance of this and how it's not going away. But what's the simulation uh, going to be doing?
1: Well, I mean, you think about your basic training exercise that I was mentioning, maybe uh, live virtual constructive well, the shooting, the bullets, and firing the cannons, and flying the uh, helicopters and the jets—that's just one part of it. When you're fighting in an area of operations, you're having an effect on the population and uh, their sentiment. And uh, you're not just operating out in the middle of a battlefield. That's that was that was the Middle Ages, you know. You're always fighting around populations now, and uh, that's unavoidable. So. There has to be simulations that are part of these training exercises that are simulating what people are saying on Twitter about you. Or maybe they got a video of a soldier doing something he shouldn't be doing and uh, something like that. How do you control that? How do you respond to it? And so on. So that has to be part of any kind of uh, training exercise now and the cyber part of it. Now, what if the uh, enemy is going to attack your your network? What if it takes it down completely? How are you going to operate? You got to simulate that. What if they jam your radio? You got to simulate that. These are all things that are you know it's not just air, uh, water, and land anymore. It's air, water, land, space, cyber, information operations, and this is a big part of that. So. Without question, without question. Hey, when we come back, I want to talk
0: about what's on your radar and what are things that we didn't cover that we need to be paying attention to. There's a lot of stuff that's happening and that's just so much to cover within this very short period of time. But I want to get your take about what are some of the key things that we should be paying attention to that may be coming up or that's already has come up in previous times. And so when we take a quick break, we'll be right back. We're We're talking about the military, talking about special operations, talking about training, In terms of the military with simulations, we're talking about all these interesting topics with Stu Magnuson from the National Defense Magazine. You can find them at Barnes & Noble. You can find them in the bookstores at Books A Million. You can find them in a number of different areas, but you can also find them online at nationaldefensemagazine.org. A great uh, publication in which you can really kind of understand what's going on in the world of defense in terms of DOD and other areas. And so it's a great place to find and, you know, find out what's happening with the military, what advances are happening, what contracts are going on, this, that and the other. We're going to keep this conversation going on with Stu when we come back. Listen to Fed Access with Derek T. George on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. George on Federal News Network. If you just joined us, we've been talking about a number of key issues that are very, very important about what's going on with defense. Special operations is having a conversation about them thinking about pivoting over to China and looking at the Indo-Pacific region more. We're talking to Stu Magnus. Stu is the uh, the editor-in-chief of the National Defense Magazine, and, and Stu Hey, you can find the magazine in what, at, at, on, at Barnes and Nobles, at Books a Million, and, and other bookstores. Is that right?
1: Yeah, those two places, carrying them nationally. couple different re- magazine uh, racks at National Airport, uh, Reagan, here in Washington, D.C., and uh, out in Dulles. And, of course, it's free online. We don't need a password or anything to check it out online. So NationalDefenseMagazine.org but
0: still talk to us about defense issues or things that you are just paying attention to right now or things that maybe you've already covered that are important.
1: Well, yeah, there's always a couple of themes I always want to hit every month and for readers, I think we've talked about China enough. That is I think still probably the number 1 my editorial uh, kind of emphasis. Number 2 is something called JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control this is a concept that all the services are pursuing and uh, they all have different names for it. And in short, uh, it's the idea that in the the future and even today, warfare is going to be so fast that AI computers traveling through a network will be happening so quickly that it's going to be on, beyond humans, to respond. So what they want to do is link all their sensors to all their shooters in all domains, air, and when you say joint, of course, all the services, operating in the seamless kind of network where things see a target and then maybe slew, the, slew something to take out the target and then it's destroyed, and there is one little hiccup there. Currently, Pentagon policy is that there's always a human in the loop to pull the trigger.
0: Stu, so is this a framework of um you know, I think it, it, there's been this whole conversation about artificial intelligence and and how because things are moving so quickly, we need AI to help uh, uh, deal with the, the the significant speed of of how warfare is going. Is that kind of in that conversation?
1: Exactly. I mean, the computers are going to be able to spot, like, a let's say, a tank hiding in the jungle quicker than a human eye, right? The sensors, high-tech sensors, can spot this stuff. A human can't. And if a human was asked to, like, go through all the data, the sensor data, it would take them hours, right? Right. Well, artificial intelligence can help find these things much quicker than a human, and then they want to make sure that, then let's say they spot a tank, the message goes out to the network, okay, we have a tank. What's the best way to take out this tank right now at this moment? Is it unmanned aerial vehicle with a Hellfire missile? Is it uh, an F-35 nearby? Is it the Army? Do they might have a, a long-range fires. Are they closer? And all that's automated. That question is asked, and automatically somebody gets an answer. And then at that point, they decide whether to fire on it. Now, that's the policy now. They say there must be a human in the loop to pull the trigger. That's the U.S. policy. Well, what if the enemy decides they don't want that policy? We're going to let the machines decide. Well, that's going to be three or four or five seconds maybe they have the advantage and in this kind of warfare when you're talking about three or four or five seconds that could be all it takes
0: that's, that, that's like a, that's like a lifetime almost that that's a that's a, that's a life of death uh, uh, three or four seconds almost right there isn't it hey with, with this kind of framework in terms of uh, uh, I, I guess a bunch of ethical issues that goes to this and I, I'm sure there's a big conversation about the ethics of war that our people are discussing more and more with AI. Are you just hearing that conversation become more important, or is it become- I, am.
1: I am hearing people, mostly retired generals, yeah. questioning this policy, saying, "You know, the enemy gets a vote, so right. the enemy might not have the ethical standards we have. The enemy might not be so concerned that that tank is actually not a tank, that the sensor's wrong, that it's a busload full of civilians." Right. This enemy might fail well, but we don't want to say, oh, well, we want to have somebody take a second look at that image and say, is that really a tank? Can I trust the AI? Can I trust the computer? There's a trust issue, right, with AI right now. Is that a pickup full of uh, terrorists heading to blow something up or a bunch of people heading to a wedding?
0: And still, also, we had, uh, you know, just even in the, in the recent dynamic of Afghanistan, where we had that situation after uh, the Marines were killed on the gate um, and, and they uh, thought that the guy was uh, a terrorist and, but he was putting water in the car. And I don't know how much artificial intelligence went into that, but I know, you know, drone warfare was part of that dynamic. But I mean, I'm just mentioning this because those still mistakes in terms of uh, a misidentifier, right? Like you said, is that a, a missile system or is that a branch or is, is that a, you know, there's a number of different things that can sometimes be, misidentified as a weapon, and then it can cause, and we've had a number of situations in warfare where deaths have been caused in a split instance of a second because things were looked at the wrong way. And then and the after action report was like, Oh, it really wasn't that going forward. I guess with AI, then you can also, if you create a weapon system that can respond in split seconds and may not, you know, think about, you know, Hey, let's take a moment real quick to, you know, th- you know, analyze that or look at the whole scene, then you could create a, a
1: very, very nightmare scenario. That's exactly it. You, you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, that's the problem. But again, we may be going up against an adversary who just doesn't care and uh, would rather make a mistake here and there and get the advantage. So, right. So, how long? Will we be there are people, like I said, mostly retired generals and so on that are questioning publicly how long we can keep this policy of the human always being the, the trigger puller.
0: You know, so from what you're reporting, um, you know, I guess the, the question that I always have is how close are we to um, the framework where the technology um, can be, you know, we can put somebody can hit the switch and put in the technology becomes. Uh, implemented and it's real? Are we very, very close? Are we um, kind of at the stepping stone of just a? it's another billion-dollar investment and they're going to be right there? Or where do you kind of so, see it
1: going? I don't know if there'll ever be a big bang, hit the switch, and it comes on, it evolve slowly with various capabilities coming on and being added to and various iterations. It's so like I said earlier, you have all three services working on the same thing they have different names for it. It's Project Convergence in the Army, for example. It's something else in the Air Force. Something, you know. So you have all three services working separately on this. Gee, is that a recipe for disaster? Yeah, probably. We've seen the military, but they're supposed to be working in this joint environment all together. The idea is, you know, in your warfare, that like I said, you you look for the the best weapon to take it out. It might be an army weapon. It might be an air force. It might be a navy. So, again, they're all working on their separate programs, separate names, separate funding streams. So, yeah, I'm a little cynical. I think people who have followed the military acquisition and their history of working together might be a little cynical about it. Um, but I think you will start to see it evolve. And it, it is coming. That's the path technology is taking us. And it, certainly, China has its own version of Jad C2. and uh, they have their own name for it. We're not the only ones working on this. So the enemy gets a vote like they said. So we're gonna have to pursue this or be at a distinct disadvantage in any possible conflict.
0: Hey, Stu, again, hey, hey, something for people to think about as we go forward, right? Hey, I always appreciate your insight on um, just giving us an understanding about what's going on in the uh, defense industry. I hope you'll come back and let's do this again because you always give us some good you know, uh, things to think about about what's happening and everything else. We've been talking to Stu Mackinson from the National Defense Magazine. You can find him at nationaldefensemagazine.org. Stu, thank you so much for being on Fed Access, and I hope we're going to catch up with you in the upcoming weeks about anything else that's going on in the world of defense going forward. My pleasure, Derek. Anytime.
1: You've been listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 1 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.